Good morning. May we give our attention with all of our hearts to God's holy word. We are in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thus ends God's word. Friends, our culture is in the midst of a seismic shift in the twin realms of gender and sexuality. For that reason, I am so thankful for this word today. But we're in the midst of a shift. In a recent Time Magazine article entitled Beyond He or She, The Changing Meaning of Gender and Sexuality, Katie Steinmetz wrote the following. Young people from across the U.S. are upending the convention that when it comes to gender and sexuality, there are only two options for each, male or female, gay or straight. These aspects of identity are undergoing a sea change as an increasing number of people say they aren't one or the other, but perhaps neither or maybe both. Expressions of gender and sexuality that go beyond this or that are nothing new, but they're increasingly moving from the margins to the mainstream. Facebook, with its more than 1 billion users, now has about 60 options for users' gender. And companies are getting in on the movement, too. A recent Bud Light commercial declared, tongue-in-cheek, that beer is for people of all genders. Essentially, male and female are, are no longer distinct binary categories. They're, they're simply ends of a fluid spectrum of gender identity. That's what we live with. And that, that shift in gender identity that reinforces a parallel shift in gender roles. Listen, listen to what Morley Winograd and Michael Heiss conclude in a National Journal article. The attitude of the millennial generation those born from 1982, 2003, I'm a millennial, in case you don't know that. 
that will have the most impact on the daily lives of Americans. Think about that. The attitude of the millennial generation that will have the most impact on the daily lives of Americans, this is not a Christian publication, is the distinctive and historically unprecedented belief that there are no inherently male or female roles in society. Well, it might be historically unprecedented, but quite frankly, it's not surprising. It's not surprising, friends. Once you do away with male and female as distinct gender identities, you no longer have a foundation on which to maintain distinct gender roles. In other words, if there's no such thing as someone who is male or female, then there can be no such thing as a uniquely male or female role. Does that make sense? That's the world we live in. And on both fronts, the issue of gender identity and the issue of gender roles, praise the Lord, God has something to say. The God who created us has something to say. Scripture tells us that gender identity is not a fluid concept or construct with with an infinite variety of categories. Scripture tells us that it's a binary construct with two categories, male or female. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created him. But what I want us to think about this morning, church, is that our creator doesn't stop there with two distinct gender identities. He not only establishes two distinct gender identities, he also establishes two distinct gender roles. He creates men with a unique responsibility to lead for God, and he creates women with a unique responsibility to help for God. That's what we learn from Genesis 2, and in, in particular, verses 18 through 25. I, I'd summarize the big idea this way, okay? We fulfill God's glorious purpose for our lives by embracing the distinct and complementary roles that God designed for us as men and women created in his image. That's how we fulfill his glorious purpose for our lives, by by embracing the distinct and complementary roles that God, our infinitely wise creator, designed us to bear as the way we uniquely reflect his image. In other words, gender differences are not incidental to our existence as creatures who bear the image of God. They're not a minor thing or a little thing. They're a really important thing because gender differences are part of God's plan for revealing his glory to the world. Think about that. It's more than just the parts you were born with. It's part of God's plan to reveal his glory to the world. They they reflect, our gender reflects biological realities, but it entails far more than just having different body parts. If God created you as a man, that he wants you to live as a man, 
And he's entrusted specific responsibilities to you as a man. If God created you as a woman, then he wants you to live as a woman. And he's entrusted specific responsibilities to you as a woman. Now please hear this up front. Okay? The unique responsibilities that I'm about to focus on are not the sum total of all that God has called us to do as men and women. Okay, so please hear that. Please hear that he's called us to do to much more than this, but church, he has not called us to less than this. Okay? And our unique responsibilities as men and women, rightly understood, those should impact and affect the way we do everything God's called us to do. I'd say it this way. There's no such thing as androgynous Christian discipleship. Okay? Gender-neutral Christian discipleship. It doesn't exist. Either you will follow Jesus as a man, or you will follow Jesus as a woman. And those are not the exact same thing. God created you as a man, then you image God as a man, and there's a masculine way of doing all God's called you to do. If God created you as a woman, then you image God as a woman, and there's a feminine way of doing all that God's called you to do. He calls us to do many of the same things. Please hear that. But we will walk them out either as a man or as a woman. That's really important. And to equip us to do that, Genesis 2, in a wonderful way, helps us understand the essence of biblical manhood and womanhood. Okay? So I have two very simple points this morning. One about men, one about women. Okay? Not a complicated outline. Here's point number one. God created men with a unique responsibility to lead. Unique responsibility to lead, okay? Back in Genesis 1.28, if you look there with me, 1.28, God gives men and women alike a shared mission. A shared mission. God said to them, what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What, What does that tell us? Some really important things. Okay, that tells us that as equal image bearers of God, men and women are together responsible for ruling the world as God's representatives on God's behalf. Together. That's a mission God's entrusted to all of us. Whether you're male or female, whether you're single or, or married. But we don't have identical roles in the way we fulfill that mission. And I think there's at least five indications in in Genesis 2 that God has given men a unique leadership responsibility. So let me walk through these with you. Let's pay careful attention to God's word here. First, First, God creates the man before he creates the woman. Before he creates the woman. In Hebrew culture, the firstborn son was given a greater position of authority in the family than his siblings. And and that's why, for example, there's so much tension between Jacob and Esau over Esau's birthright in Genesis. So so God, knowing, knowing that the original recipients of Genesis really weighed the importance of birth order, he's careful to inform them 
that he created the man first. Now, that does not mean that the man is superior in worth or value to the woman. Don't go there, guys. It's not true. Why not? Because both of them were equally created in the image of God. But it points to the man's leadership responsibility in the relationship. That's how the original hearers would have understood that fact that God's careful to note, I created the man first. Here's the second pointer toward men have a unique leadership responsibility. Look at verse 16. Notice in verse 16 of chapter 2 that God gives his righteous law to the man before the woman is even created. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Notice there's no record here of God ever repeating his words of exhortation and warning to the woman. Why not? Well, he clearly holds her responsible for disobeying them later in Genesis 3. That much is obvious. But the implicit assumption is that the man was responsible for sharing God's word with, with the woman and ensuring that together the man and the woman were faithfully obeying God's word. That's why God gave it to him. Third, if you look at verse 15, God entrusts the man with a specific mission to what? To work and keep the Garden of Eden. Okay, notice God never gives a similar mission, never repeats that, in speaking to the woman. Instead, he identifies her in verse 18 and verse 20 as what? A helper for the man. A helper for the man. Okay, now we know, repeat this again from Genesis 1.28, that God has given men and women a shared mission to fill the earth and, and subdue it. But what Genesis 2 shows us, church, is that God intended them to accomplish that shared mission by tasking the man to work and keep the garden and tasking the woman to help him in that work. That's the pattern. Fourth, the woman is created from the man and brought to the man. If you look at verse 18 and 20 again, they, they specifically say, God says there, that she was created for the man. So again, this bears repeating, we know that doesn't make the man more valuable than the woman. It doesn't, but it does mean that God designed the woman to support the man's leadership in a way that he did not design the man to support the woman's leadership. Okay, fifth, and probably most importantly, God gave the man authority to name the woman. As Americans, we, we can just fly over that and think, why are you spending so much time on this whole naming routine? For the Hebrews, that was very, very, very significant. Very significant. God, God gave the man authority to name the woman, no less than he authorized him to name the livestock, the birds of the heavens, and every beast of the field. Now we know, if you look at verse 23, from the man's reaction, which, by the way, should not be read quietly. 
this at last is bone of No, this at last is bone of my bones. We, we know that he recognized the woman belonged in an entirely different category. It wasn't like peacock, rhino, elephant, woman. Oh, that's cool. No, entirely different category. Okay, this is not just another animal standing before him. And yet he still named her. He named her, reflecting the authority of the God who named the light day and the heavens sky and the land earth back in Genesis 1. Because in Hebrew culture, to name someone was to exercise authority over them. And that's why, for example, you have in Genesis 17, God renaming Abram, Abraham. Or in Daniel chapter 1, the Babylonians renaming Daniel, Belteshazzar, exercising authority over them. It's worth noting that, that God never explicitly commissions the man as a leader. He doesn't say, come here, Adam, got something special for you. You get the leadership role. He doesn't say that. We simply witness the man from the very beginning of creation exercising a unique leadership responsibility in the relationship. So it's not dramatic, it's not flashy, it's ordained by God, and in the words of Genesis 131, it's exceedingly good. So I really like the way Ray Ortland Jr. puts it. Look at this. When he, when he surveys the role of men in relation to women in this chapter and concludes, in the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. Can okay, I listen? That qualification in a God-glorifying direction is really important, ladies. Really important, okay? Why? Because the man's unique leadership responsibility in Genesis 2 was not a license to dominate or abuse or demean the woman. It was a charge from God to bear the weight of responsibility for ensuring that both of them were living in a way that was pleasing to God. The woman's never told to to stay away from anything that smacks of leadership. Okay, nor is the man told that he must personally do all the leadership work. If it looks like leadership, no touch, that's mine. No, you won't see that. But, but what is undeniably clear from Genesis 2 is that the weight of responsibility for leadership rests on the man. And if the woman does something wrong, Guess who gets held accountable? Genesis 3.9. The man does. That's on him. And God does not look kindly on the, I wasn't part of that. It's his responsibility. Okay, so, so what does this unique responsibility look like? Again, I'm, what am I saying? What do we see in Genesis 2? That God has given men a unique responsibility to lead. What, what does that look like in various Life settings. Let me just give you a couple examples, okay? How about if you're a single guy? Think about this, all right? It means, brothers, that in whatever setting you find yourself, God has called you 
to humbly and lovingly take whatever initiative is necessary to make sure that God's word is honored and God's mission is fulfilled. He's called you to do that. So I'm not, I'm not talking about becoming a type A personality that's just leading all over the place and all I do is lead. It's not what I'm talking about. I am saying, guys, that if you're standing in a group of friends, you've got some guys, you've got some girls, and they're chatting, whatever, wherever, and somebody tells an off-color joke, that it's your responsibility, young man, to redirect that conversation. It is. Okay, that, that doesn't mean a godly woman should remain silent until you speak up or say nothing if you don't speak up. It simply means you shouldn't stand there with your hands in your pockets and just let the chips fall where they may. Or it's just kind of playing it cool. No! If you're a man, God's called you to take responsibility to lead spiritually in that moment, guys. Example two, what if you have a girlfriend? I want this to be really practical. How how does this unique responsibility to lead play out there? Well, it means, it means, among other things, that just like God tasked the man, if you look at verse 15, to work and keep the garden, that keeping is a guarding function, that it's ultimately your job, if you have a girlfriend, single guy, to protect that woman from the immoral sexual desires in your heart. That's your job. She shouldn't be the one who has to say, hey, do you think we're going too far? It's your responsibility to initiate a conversation where together you decide what sorts of physical or emotional boundaries will enable you, Romans 12, to outdo one another in showing honor. That's on you. How about if you're a married man? What might this unique responsibility to lead look like in your life? Well, gentlemen, it it means, bottom line, that your relationship with your wife should be marked by a pattern of spiritual initiative. That's what it means. So for example, if, if you and your wife get into a conflict, which I know never happens except to anybody but my wife and me. No, of course not. It'll probably happen to most of us this week. If you and your wife get into a conflict, or you need to talk through an important decision, Are you going to ignore the issue and just leave well enough alone and hope the nor'easter blows over without too much debris in the yard? Or might you take responsibility for the relationship? I'll give you a hint. That's what this pattern of leadership needs to look like. (laughs) By confessing your sin... Or if she says, you know what, I think we need to talk about where we're sending the kids to school. That she doesn't have to say that 4,000 times before you plan a night when the two of you can go out somewhere and have the conversation. Okay? I'm not giving you a list of rules. I'm not giving you 10 steps, and that's by design. There's a principle. The pattern of spiritual initiative, responsibility for that, rests on you as a man. Okay? I don't mean, gentlemen, that in every social setting you have to fill all the leadership roles. Don't hear that. Okay? I simply mean that if you're a man, 
God has entrusted you with a unique weight of responsibility to lead all the people around you, men and women included, in following God's word and fulfilling God's mission. So God, God created men, point number one, with a unique responsibility to lead in fulfilling our mission. It's that simple and that hard. Point number two. Point number two. God created women with a unique responsibility to help. To help. Okay, if you read straight through Genesis 1 and 2, you'll notice an unusual pattern of sorts. And the pattern is this. God creates something, and God saw that it was good. God creates something, and God saw that it was good. God creates something, and God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good, which makes this statement in verse 18 shocking when it finally comes up. What, what does God say? Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Not good. Something's not good? Yes, it's not good. Okay, the, the point is not that every form of solitude is a bad thing. That's not the point. The point is that our covenant-keeping, covenant-making God, he created us, all of us, for community. That's the point. He's a a God who exists himself in relationship, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, perfect eternal harmony. And so it's no surprise when he creates creatures, male and female, who bear his image— that we necessarily exist and must exist in relationship to. So as a relational God, bearing his image means living in relationship. It's not complicated. God, God created us for community, which, side note, is why covenant membership in the local church is so important. <laughs> he created us for community. But we don't just need the companionship of people like us. You know, that's what we tend to think. And quite frankly, social media is not our help in this regard. Because we can create these little worlds where we only hear from, listen to, talk with, interact with, and type back to, God forbid we would call on the phone, people that are just like us in every way. But that's not the only kind of companionship we need. We need the companionship of people that are very different than us. So, so notice when God said, back to verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. He didn't respond by creating another man. You may chuckle about that or something, but, but, but again, the main points of passages lie in the things that are most obvious. Okay? He did not initially create another man. He first created a woman. Keep your eyes on verse 18. I will make a helper fit for him. And that's an exceedingly important phrase for two big reasons. Okay, so follow me here. Two big reasons. We're going to linger here because we really need to understand this. First, that phrase, I will make a helper fit for him. I'm going to speak to the men here. Men, that confronts us with the humbling reality that we need help. Okay, and there were more than just women laughing there. Yeah, amen to that, Josh. That we need help. It confronts us with that reality. Think about this. So before sin entered the world, 
when that man had unbroken relationship with God. He, he was living in paradise itself. No sin anywhere. He still needed a helper. So he wasn't as created by God in his perfection. Omnicompetent. Self-sufficient. He was utterly incapable. Incapable of fulfilling the mission that God had entrusted to him on his own. Utterly incapable. And verse 18 doesn't just point to our need for a wife in a particular sense, gentlemen. It points to our need for women in a categorical sense. Notice the Lord doesn't say, I will make him a wife. Though he initially brings the man, the woman, as his wife, he first says, I will make him a helper. A helper. Including our our categorical need there for women as men. Helper isn't a weak word. We tend to think like that, right? But it's not a weak word. It's a strong word. To, To help someone else is to make up what is lacking in them. That's not weak. That's strong. I, I love how Bruce Waltke observes, listen, the word helper used for God, 16 of the 19 times it appears in the Old Testament, signifies the woman's essential contribution, not her inadequacy. What, what, what do we tend to think in the Western world? Well, just, here's how we think, okay? It's not rocket science. We think of leaders, leaders, as superior to helpers. I mean, how many times have you read a college admissions exam where, you know, what do you want to be? And, and the answer in the essay was just, you know, I just want to be a helper. I just want to be a follower. No, what is it? You, you, I'm going to lead. I'm going to lead. I'm going to lead. We're all going to lead. Nobody's going to follow. Nobody's going to help. That's messed up. We bought into this notion that, that the call to lead has inherently more value than the call to help. And that's why anyone that gets close to saying God's called someone else to be a helper, we label them as self-righteous and bigots. But it's not true. It's not the biblical worldview. God doesn't lose his glory by helping us. Okay? He reveals his glory. 1 Samuel 7, 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has led us. No, till now the Lord has helped us. Psalm 121 verses 1 and 2. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So so to be a helper is not a position of inferiority. It's a position of strength. But lest we fall prey to the opposite error and think that by virtue of this analogy to to God that the one helping is actually superior to the one being helped, like, take that, guys. Gordon Wenham, Wenham cautions us to help someone does not imply that the helper is stronger than the helped. Simply that the latter's strength is inadequate by itself. That's all he's saying. Do you believe that, men? 
Do you believe that? Do you you believe that across the board, when it comes to fulfilling our God-given mission to rule the earth and subdue the earth, to represent him, that we cannot accomplish that mission without the unique strengths and abilities and wisdom and gifts that God has uniquely given to women? It's true that their strengths and abilities make up for what we lack in ourselves. And God has given you, ladies, strengths and abilities simply by virtue of who you are, the way he's made you, that unless those are brought to the table, there is no way that we will ever accomplish our God-given mission. No way. We need to see that, gentlemen. We need to see that. And, And bringing the man to the point where he understood his need for help, you think, why am I just lingering on this? Okay, I get it, Williams. Well, well, here's why. It was so important to the Lord that he delayed creating the woman until he was convinced that that man actually recognized his need for a helper. Okay? So have you ever wondered, look back at verse 19, have you ever wondered why God says, I will make a helper fit for him? And then the very first thing he does, verse 19, is he, he brings this whole parade of birds and animals to Adam. It's like, um, you know, uh, last time I checked, a good editor makes sure there's not, like, oranges in a paragraph of apples. So, so let's finish the woman thing, and then we can kind of get on with the, the, the animal parade. Well, there's a point to that. There's a reason. As Dan Doriani observes, God had Adam name all the animals, so he could see his aloneness as loneliness. So Adam, first man, he sees male beasts. He sees female beasts. He sees male birds. He sees female birds. And as the parade comes to a close, it begins to dawn on him, I don't have what all these other creatures have. Look at verse 20. But for Adam, for the man, there was not found a helper fit for him. That is until the Lord provided exactly what he needed. Verse 22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What dawned on him in that moment? What dawned on him, he knew that the woman God had created was both like him and unlike him. And and he intuitively recognized that that unique combination, you are both like me and unlike me, that's going to enable you to compliment me and help me. And and stereotypes aside, because we don't want to get stuck in that ditch and I'm not going to go there, there is a reason that women are different than men. There's a reason, okay? Because left to ourselves as men, we simply cannot do what God has called us to do. We, we need a helper. The first thing verse 18 confronts us with is simply that. Gentlemen, we need a helper. But that's not the only thing it confronts us with, okay? I so said there were two things. Here's the second one. Verse 18 invites and challenges women. I want to speak directly to you ladies at this point to embrace your unique God-given role as a helper. God gets in both of our faces, so to speak. Guys, you need a helper. Ladies, I created you to help. 
We need both of those. To, to, to be a helper isn't just a generic thing. It's a specific thing. Notice that God says, I will make him a helper and not just a generic helper, but a helper fit for him or corresponding to him. In other words, ladies, you are exactly what we need. Where you are weak, we are strong. Where you are strong, we are weak. And that by virtue of God's perfect design. So to to be a helper is what? It's to reflect the character of God himself by being a source of spiritual support and strength to the men around you. Okay, Lise Fitzpatrick says, when, when the Bible says that God is our helper, it means that he protects, aids, suckers, supports, and surrounds us. Okay, that, that's, a, that's a picture of the unique responsibility that God has given you as a woman. And, and when you embrace that responsibility and live out that responsibility, it will nourish and it will draw out godly leadership from the men around you who are willing to receive your help. And ladies, the reason I linger on this point that, that you are called to help and reflect the character of God in your helping is because I want to protect you from an unbiblical definition of helping. Okay, helping does not mean unquestioning allegiance. It doesn't mean supporting men in in disobedience or sin. It is intelligent, it is God-honoring, it is gospel-centered, and it is God-exalting. Okay? And it includes humbly exhorting and challenging the men around you to be the leader that God has called them to be. In other words, biblical helping is not passive. It's very active, and and it's an exceedingly good thing. So what does the world say to you, ladies? In answer to the question, what does it mean to be a woman? Think about this. What, what, what goes scrolling across the screen if you ask the average celebrity on TV, what does it mean to be a woman? Well, at risk of generalizing, I'm going to give you three categories that I think are pretty much where most answers fall into. One, being a woman means doing everything the boys do, only better. Two, being a woman means being a CEO and a mom. I call this the you-can-have-it-all vision of womanhood. Or three, it means going all in on the mom thing <laughs> by, by creating this perfect home environment where you have Mozart music lessons for your two-year-old and everything is organic and you have like four blogs, photography and remodeling, all on the side and, and you're just where it's at with the mom thing. <laughs> Ladies, God will call some of you to be CEOs. He will call many of you to be moms. Please hear me on this. Neither having a corner office, a ring on your finger, or a posse of honor roll kids in your house makes you a real woman. It doesn't. Okay, A, a godly woman may have all those things. If you don't believe me, just read Proverbs 31. All right, But what defines biblical femininity and makes it distinct from biblical masculinity is the unique responsibility God has given you to help. 
That's what makes it distinct. So, so how do you do that? You do that by using your unique gifts and abilities to support and strengthen the men around you such that together we can fulfill God, the mission that God's given us. That's how you do that. The, the woman was not, note this, she was not an isolated, independent, self-sufficient creature. She was created for the man and oriented toward the man because she was made from the man. There's a difference. God created man from the dust of the ground. And he commanded him to work and keep the garden. God created the woman, not from the dust of the ground, but from the man. She's oriented toward him in a similar way that he's oriented toward the ground so that she might be his helper in the shared mission of working and keeping the garden. And that call to help, ladies, that's not the only task God's given you. But it is the heart of what makes you distinct as a woman. And it's one of the most important ways that you reflect the glory of our creator. No less than when men are faithful to lead. So, let's get practical again. How do you embrace your call to help in various scenarios? Well, let me start first with a single woman who's a CEO. Okay, I'm just going to go for a hard one. All right? What's, what's this look like when you have a team of men in your workplace who directly report to you? Well, outside the home and the church, the Bible does not give us a list of, of specific offices or positions that are reserved for men or reserved for women. And, and while that might be really frustrating to some Christians who would like everything to fall in a nice little tic-tac-toe rule box— I'm really glad God didn't do that. And the reason is that it keeps us focused on the principle. What's the principle? How can I as a woman use my gifts and abilities to strengthen and support the men around me? That's the principle. So, back to the workplace. As a single woman, there is a way of relating to a male subordinate that signals to him your eagerness for him to exercise leadership and take initiative. And there is a way of relating to the same male subordinate that discourages his leadership and suffocates his initiative. Biblical femininity is is at root. And that's why I'm speaking about heart attitudes and, and dispositions. At root, it really is a heart attitude. It's a heart attitude toward men that is eager and willing to help and support them. So well, let's shift a little bit away from the single woman CEO. How, how about if you're a married woman? Okay, what, what is this unique responsibility to help look like for you in your relationship with your husband? Well, again, it can't be reduced to an easy list. I'm not going to give you that because it's, it's an attitude of heart more than anything else. But for example, it means that instead of judging and berating your husband for areas of life, in his life, where he's lacking, you cheerfully pitch in and help. Instead of judging and berating him, you, you cheerfully pitch in and help. And when I say help, I'm not saying that, that being a leader means you have to be the one that balances the checkbook any more than somehow being a helper means you have to be the one that cooks. It's not what I'm saying. Okay, the point is that you humbly use your strengths, married woman, 
to make up for the weaknesses in your husband and you embrace that relationship not as something that he needs to fix in the long run until you're, because your patience is just going to eventually run out. Not as something that needs fixed, but rather as a part of what God created you to do as a helper. He's always going to lack. That's why God created you to be his helper. And, and I know, I know plenty of godly married women, many of whom are sitting in this congregation listening to me, who have stronger natural leadership gifts than their husbands. Plenty of them. I love you for it. But, this is why I love you for it, you work hard, you work very hard to deploy your leadership gifts and use your leadership gifts in a way that draws out and strengthens your husband's leadership responsibility. You do that so well. And you're not doing that because you're trying to remake your husband in your image. You're doing that because you're convinced that God in his infinite wisdom has called your husband to lead. And so you're not failing to lead in any way, but the way you exercise your leadership gifts, even if they are greatly superior to your husband, you're doing that in such a way that, that helps and strengthens and draws out his leadership. Again, it's not a list of rules. It's an attitude of the heart. And instead of saying as he takes faulting, growing steps in his leadership, it's about time, you say, you know what? I really appreciated it when you did that. How can I keep helping? God's given women a unique responsibility to help. Friends, in conclusion, in conclusion, we we fulfill God's glorious purpose for our lives by embracing the the distinct and complementary roles that he's designed for us as men and women created in his image. So men are created by God with a unique responsibility to lead. Women as created by God have a unique responsibility to help. And when men are faithful to lead and women are faithful to help, together and together alone, we are able to accomplish our God-given mission. That's the lesson of Genesis 2. Now, if you look at verse 24 and 25, where this passage ends and where we'll end today, you'll see that the man's call to lead and the woman's call to help culminate in the covenant of marriage. Notice here, marriage is not a human institution. It's not. It's a divine institution. What is marriage, biblically defined? It is a lifelong One flesh covenant between one man and one woman. That's marriage. Anything else, no matter what it's called, is not marriage. And marriage is the only God-glorifying context for sexual intimacy. Notice, they do not become one flesh, and then the man holds fast to his wife in the covenant of marriage. What happens? The man holds fast to his wife in the covenant of marriage, And then they are united as one flesh in their sexual union. Marriage is God's normative only context for sexual activity. But but here's what we need to realize as we end with marriage in view here, folks. Please hear this. Our God-given gender roles transcend marriage even as they find their most intimate expression in marriage.
I'll say that again because that's really important. Our God-given gender roles called a unique responsibility to lead, unique responsibility to help. Those roles, those callings transcend marriage even as they find their most intimate expression in marriage. So, so scripture is most explicit about how the call to lead and the call to help play out in the context of marriage and the church. It's most explicit in speaking to those contexts, but God's vision for biblical manhood and womanhood is bigger than those two institutions. Why do I say that? For the simple reason, and this is really good news if you're single, by the way, that you don't become a man when you become a husband. You don't become a woman when you become a wife any more than you would become a man or a woman when you become a church member. God's God's plan for our gender roles is bigger than the institutions of marriage and the church. And, And one of my concerns for us as a pastor, if I can speak very directly here, is that this this gender-neutral air that we breathe, because that's the air that we breathe, plus a genuine desire to avoid some of the sad abuses of complementarian gender roles in the history of the church, that those two things would combine, friends, and they would leave us with, with this narrow, anemic vision of what it means to follow Jesus as a man or as a woman, okay? It's not about checking the boxes of do men serve as elders and are wives submitting to their husbands. That's not the point because whether you're single or married, whether you're old or young, being a man means you embrace your unique responsibility to lead. And whether you're single or married, old or young, being a woman means you embrace your unique responsibility to help. You will live out those roles in a particularly explicit way in marriage, in the home, and in the church, but those roles transcend both of those contexts. And if we lose that vision, friends, then we have lost the heart of biblical manhood and womanhood. We've lost it. But if we hold on to that, if we, if we embrace that vision and, and celebrate that vision, even as we struggle to understand and live out that vision, then the world's going to see a ref- beautiful reflection of the wisdom and goodness of our creator. And we're going to enjoy the blessing of doing life as God made us to do it. That's where we experience the most joy. It's not in saying, what kind of role would I like? But rather, what kind of role, creator God, have you made for me? And even as we struggle and fight and it's difficult and hard, and we don't always know what to do or what that looks like, we look to him and we ask for help and he's faithful to help. Listen to how Owen Strand puts it. We are not Christian Teletubbies. Can I be any more direct? We're not Christian Teletubbies. We're not gospel blobs. We're not the redeemed androgynous. We are gospel-captivated men and gospel-captivated women. And when converted, we come to understand that our bodies are given us as vessels by which to put God's wisdom and intelligence and love on display. Our sexuality then is not incidental, it's not unimportant, it's not a a curse we want to get rid of, it's not a, a burden God's given us that we do everything to downplay. Our manhood and womanhood is a God designed pathway to delight.
when it's walked out humbly and graciously with our eyes on Jesus. Friends, I want to challenge you in a world and a culture that is getting off the rails when it comes to gender identity and gender roles, that in the church we not be squeamish. And we not drift into the, yeah, I don't really know. I'm not sure. I'm learning. I'm understanding. We're always going to be learning and understanding. But there is clear guidance in Genesis 2 from the Lord that God has an answer to the question, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? We're not left hanging with a giant fill-in-the-blank there. We have an answer. It's not easy to live. It's hard to figure out. The devil's in the details. But let's not lose the vision. Because in that, the world sees there is a wise creator. And even when walking out his roles and his ways are really hard and messy, it's good. Because he's good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the guidance your word gives us. And I pray, Father, as we now turn to, in a direct way, fix our eyes on you. And through partaking of the Lord's Supper, proclaim in a public way that we need your help. That this morning, Lord, that act would be a direct expression of trust and faith. That as you are the one who has wisely given us gender roles, that you will also be the one who will empower us to walk them out. Father, I pray that we would never have our eyes fixed on what I am allowed to do, what I'm not allowed to do, and reduce your glorious vision to a list of rules and offices. I pray, Father, that with our eyes on you, Jesus, and empowered by you, that we would run after your vision for what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, that we wouldn't be apologetic about that, but we would walk it out humbly and faithfully for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.